This sermon is entitled, Making Every Effort to Become More Like Jesus. Or if you want the alternative title, it's called Effortless Effort. Effortless Effort. There's a, um, a skill-growing um, theory out there that says you start with unconscious incompetence. That means you're lousy at something and you don't even know that you're lousy at it. And then you all of a sudden realize one day that you're lousy at something, and so it's called conscious incompetence. Oh, this is where someone would say, I suck at that. You know that it's terrible. And then all of a sudden you start working at it, and you have, you have a... What's the third one? It's just escaping my mind now. Conscious incompetence. And you have conscious competence. There we go. Where you're, you're getting better at it and you're working hard. You have to think very carefully and you keep working at it to the point where you can do the thing without even thinking anymore. And it's unconscious competence. Effortless effort. We're going to get there in this sermon. So, Take about two minutes right now, turn to two or three other people, and I want you to tell them something that you're good at. Maybe it's your hobby. Maybe it's a skill that you have. Just turn to one another and tell each other what you're really good at. Let them know. All right. Well, thank you for engaging in those conversations. We, are, we get good at things that we love to do very often, and uh, that's why we, why we pick our hobbies. It's something that we, we have fun with. So, how did you get to be good at something? How did that happen? I suspect that you worked at it. Maybe you practiced. You did it over and over. You went from one project to another. You kept at it. You made an effort. You practiced over and over again. In our text today, the Apostle Peter is telling us to make every effort, every effort. So, these are my golf clubs. I don't, I don't want to say that I'm, I'm really good at golf, but, uh, but I, I, do love, I do love these clubs. And I especially love this driver. Oh, like, this driver... It's a Callaway Rogue, and uh, when you hit the sweet spot on this baby, oh yeah, you can send that little ball soaring. Now, um, I'm told that if you would buy a driver like this off the shelf, brand new, it would be upwards of $600. But I want to tell you that I didn't do that. I, I didn't steal it. <laughs> I was playing in a fundraising event, and... Uh, uh, there was a, a raffle afterwards. Actually, I went with a friend, and I didn't have any cash on me, and he bought my raffle ticket, okay? So you know where this story is going. My number got picked, and I got this driver in that tournament pulled out of a hat. So um, he really wanted it, but I said, hey, it's my ticket, so you gave it to me. There you go. <laughs> He's actually a very generous guy. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> So it was, a, it, was a, it was a gift, really, this, this driver. Enjoy it. Now, now let, me, let me move on to my irons, okay? These, these are uh, a little bit older, but they're tailor-made irons. And um, 
A number of years ago, I was golfing with a friend, and he noticed the clubs that I had, and uh, we were just talking, and he said, you know, I'm getting some new irons. Would you like my old irons? And I said, sure. So he he gave me this this really nice set of irons, and uh, and even this putter. So it's... uh, I really appreciated that generosity, and, and I've kept them, and, uh, and there they are uh, to this day. Now, golf is a challenging game if you've played it. Maybe some of you are natural. I don't know. I don't know if that's, that's probably a myth. There's no such thing as a natural golfer. You've got to work at it. So a few years ago, I decided I wanted to get better at the game of golf, so I signed up for some lessons, five lessons. Um, at, it was actually at Golf Town, so I was going to go there and, you know, hit the ball into the computer screen, and you know, the guy would analyze my swing and everything like that. But before we started that, he asked me a couple of questions. He said, what are your goals? What are your goals? And I said, well, I would like to be able to break 100 consistently. That tells you the level of my golf game. Par is 72. I would like to break 100 consistently. And he asked me two questions. How often do you play? And do you practice? And I said, well, I play maybe five, six times a year, and I practice once in a while. And he looked me straight in the face and said, you're never going to achieve your goal. It won't happen, I guarantee you. So I was deflated right from the very beginning. But I learned a few things, still went through the lessons, and he improved my game a little bit. But you know what? <laughs> he was right. <laughs> I still don't consistently break 100. Do you know why? Because I don't practice very much. I go out maybe five times a year, that kind of a thing, and I'll get a par once in a while, but I'm still usually around 100, maybe even a little more every now and then. You know, I think I could get better at golf if I would play more. If I would actually go to the driving range two or three times a week, I bet you I would break 100 more than that, more, more regularly, but I don't. Any endeavor takes effort. If I want to become an effortless golfer, I'm going to have to put effort into it. The same could be said of piano playing. I took piano lessons when I was a little kid and hated it and stopped, and now I wish it would have kept on because I can't play like Han or, or any of many of you who are wonderful pianists. Why? Because you kept at it. You kept practicing. Those of you that are parents that, are, that made your kids practice, now as, as adults, we're so thankful that you pushed us through it. Some of us wish our parents would have pushed harder, but I can't put it on my mom. Mom, no, it's not your fault. I didn't practice hard enough. People who dance, people who write, musicians, if they're going to become good at something, you've got to put the effort into it. These examples from our activities of life speak to or become a metaphor for us as followers of Jesus. They speak to us as those who have said, yes, we want to follow Him. We are giving our allegiance to Him. They illustrate for us a principle of how we can follow Jesus. And Peter does it as well. In verse 3, he says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. We don't have to come up with the content of our Christian faith. We don't even have to come up with the plan for how to follow Him. He says we have been given everything we need 
for a godly life. These verses, especially the first few verses that Tyrell read for us, they just pour out with what God has given us to those through the righteousness of God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, who have received a faith as precious as ours. Received. It's been given to us. What's been given to us? Grace and peace be yours in abundance. The word is to be filled up to overflowing, more and more given to us. Grace is a gift. He's offering that to us. And then verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who has called us. He calls us. How? By His glory and His goodness. Through these, verse 4, He has given us. He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. We have been given everything we need to live a godly life. The great and precious promises, God's word to us, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have what we need to follow Jesus. In a way, God is like my friend who gave me the golf clubs. My friend gave me everything I need to have a great game of golf. I didn't earn those clubs. I didn't pay for them. I, er I exerted no effort to get those clubs or to get that driver. I simply received them. Our life with God is a gift to us. We don't qualify for it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to do anything to qualify for it. We do qualify for it, but we don't have to do anything to work towards that qualification. We don't have to do anything to make ourselves good enough for it. We receive it. We don't have to make any effort to receive Him. He gives Himself to us. That's the grace that we ended our time with last week. He gives Himself to us, not, hes not hesitantly, not reluctantly, but lavishly, grace and peace in abundance given to us. Because of that, we have everything we need to live a godly life. And that's the imperative that's hidden within this text. We are called to live a godly life. It's our calling. It's what we're to do. We're called to grow, to be fruitful in our knowledge of Him. We're called to become mature followers of Jesus which, as Peter puts it, is to participate in the divine nature. We're invited into participation in the divine nature. That's what God wants for us, to enter into a relationship with Him so much so that we participate with Him. We're invited into the Trinitarian conversation with Father, Son, and Spirit. How that happens how we receive that and how it works out in our lives so that the Holy Spirit is actually making that happen is a mystery to us. But we believe that when we say yes to Jesus, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that He lives in us and somehow He transforms us from the inside out. So something of the divine nature, by very virtue of the fact that we've said yes to Jesus and say, yes, we want to live in allegiance to You, Lord, His Spirit is within us and making that happen. He's given us everything we need to live a godly life by giving us Himself. Now, 
those golf clubs were a wonderful gift. But I'll tell you this. If I never take them out of the bag, they're not going to make me a better golfer. I actually have to walk over there, take them out, and go out and hit some balls. Go to the practice range. Go to the golf course. Use them. I've got to put some effort into making that gift take effect. If I don't do it, I won't improve. As wonderful as the gift was, the gift doesn't change. Now, God gives us himself not simply so that we can have him, but that's the starting point. We begin to grow then, and we partner with Him, with His energy at work, His power at work within us. We then join with Him and make an effort to grow our character, to live a godly life. That's our calling. We're called to grow, to be growers through our lives, to become spiritually mature, plants need to grow, as we talked about last week. Growth is a constant. It makes sense. It's what we desire for all of us, and it takes time. It's a process. It's why we're called to put significant effort into it. It's a lifetime project, really. But for us, many of us in our culture, maybe our culture at large, this is a concept that's hard to grasp because we have been trained to expect things to happen quickly for us. We've been lured very often by the quick fix. I don't know how many of you uh, watched the movie about 20 years ago. It came out called The Matrix. Any Matrix fans in here? A few? Okay. Well, I'm not necessarily recommending this movie, even though, well, anyway, I'll just leave it at that. But there's a character in the movie called Trinity. Not the Trinity, but her name is Trinity, okay? And in that movie, she needs to learn how to fly a helicopter. Do you remember this scene? And in, it's science fiction, so you've got to kind of let's jump in and, and go with it. And she says, I don't know how to fly a helicopter. Wait a minute. Just give me a few seconds. And then there's this mind download into her through the story. You know that. And in 10 seconds, she knows how to fly a helicopter. It's amazing. She jumps in this helicopter and does these amazing things. We want to learn how to do things fast, don't we? I mean, if I could learn how to hit my irons properly, that would be amazing. I would like someone just to download into me. I, I mean, I watch the guys on TV, Roy McIlroy, when he, like, he just hits the ball so good, and I duff. I wish in 10 seconds I could just, like, be a better golfer. But that's lottery thinking. What would I do if I win the lottery? That's like quick fix. That's the lure of the quick fix. There was a company a couple of years ago that was a little more popular than it is now called Lumosity. Do you remember it? They got us by saying if we played their games on the phone, that it would make our brains work better. It was an improvement uh, uh, of, of brain health playing, the, playing these games on on the phone or on your computer or whatever. And they were capitalizing on our desire to learn things fast. And there's nothing wrong with learning things fast, but often we want to short-circuit the process. They were also capitalizing on people's desire to slow down brain decay. If you play these games, 
you will be smarter quicker. Well, there were some scientific claims on there that were unverified, and they were actually sued, and they had to pay a lot of money. And so you don't hear too much about Lumosity right now. I don't use their games. Anyway. Um, but also, you can purchase brain health supplements. Students, buy some brain health supplements, and instantaneously you'll be smarter. So that's the claim. Maybe I'm overselling it a little bit, but buy, you can buy smart drugs to enhance cognitive performance. Athletes look for performance-enhancing drugs and try and beat the system so that they're not detected. Why? They want to get better faster so that they can win. The lure of the quick fix is all around us. None of that sounds like making every effort. They say it takes something like 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. Whether or not one accepts that, I think we can all agree that it takes time and energy to develop skills and qualities. We know that to be true in sports or music. Why should it be any less true in our faith, in our Christian lifestyle? The qualities and behaviors described in 2 Peter 1 are a lifetime project. Peter suggests as much when he says these qualities can be possessed in increasing measure. We can always grow in these. We can grow in faith, in goodness, in knowledge, in self-control, in perseverance, in godliness, in mutual affection, in love. We can make every effort to grow those qualities, those characteristics into our lives. When we do that, when we work on developing a skill, I don't know if it's happened for you, but, but there is a certain satisfaction that comes when you see an improvement. Even with the little bit of work that I've done in my golf game, there's something really sweet about hitting a straight, long drive. There's something just exhilarating about that. It doesn't have to be just in sports. It's, it's in other accomplishments as well. We've been doing some, some renovations in, in, in our house, and, and down in the basement I've been doing some mudding and taping. It's down where nobody will see it because it's not that great, but I still stand there and look at it and go, yeah, I did that. I watched some YouTube videos, and now I know how to tape in mud. And I look at it, yeah, I did that. There's a certain satisfaction that comes after weeks and months of working on your renovations to actually see that there was some progress made. There's a joy that comes when we put effort into things. And that's true in our Christian life too. There's a satisfaction that comes when we work on our relationship and we grow in our love and our relationship with God and with one another. There's nothing wrong with experiencing that joy. In fact, it's a good thing that we experience it in community. The text here in Peter tells us that joy comes in two ways. One of them is sort of a running away from, and the other is a running towards. The first thing is from verse 4 where Peter talks about escaping the corruption of the world that comes from evil desires. We are called to make every effort to develop moral character, and that helps us escape the lustful desire, the quick-fix lust, the lust of wanting things for ourselves to happen quickly. 
God gives us everything we need to develop and, and live a godly life, but we must take that gift and develop it. We are, as a people, as individuals, as a society, susceptible to lustful desires. We are. And the way to deal with them is to develop this moral character. And working and making every effort helps us to, even more than just pushing away that second helping that we shouldn't have, which is sort of a low-level dealing with escaping from evil desires. It's rather more of a, a running, a turning and high-tailing it in the other direction. It evokes the story from the Old Testament, the book of Genesis of, of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. If you remember that story from Genesis 39, Joseph was being lured by her enticements. She wanted to, to, to bring him and, and have a sexual encounter with him, and he fled from her. That's the image, Escape, escaping, running away from. When we develop our moral character, we learn to get the skill to escape from and run away from those lustful desires, whatever they may be for us. Uh, in talking about that, N.T. Wright in his commentary on Second Peter says this, she made a grab at him, but he ran away. This isn't cowardice to run away from that, he says. A coward, as a wise old writer once put it, saves his prospects at the cost of his honor. A coward does that. Keeps his options open even if you sacrifice your honor. But Joseph did the opposite. In other words, he saved his honor at the cost of his prospects because he fled. He developed moral character. He made every effort, even though it was hard, and he was stuck in that prison for all those years. On the other side of it, all of that effort, all of that work, even the difficulties and the despondency that he went through paid off in the long run. God did it in him, and he cooperated with that work. Now, running away from evil desires, running away from lust, is not meant to be a killjoy. <laughs> Certain pleasures are enticements, and there may be some allure of fun in them, but this is not an anti-pleasure passage. No, it's not. You see, God desires wholeness for us. His vision for humanity and humans is shalom. It's peace and prosperity, wholeness shared among all, which certainly includes wholesome pleasure. Lust, on the other hand, is selfish. Lust always wants more, not simply more in general, but more for me. Lust always wants what's best for me and me alone, what makes me feel good. We need to escape that, run away from that by developing our moral character. It demands more and gives less. On the other hand, when we pursue a relationship with Jesus, it turns our focus to the other. Certainly, we work on ourselves. We make every effort to develop our moral character, but the point of it is to bless others. It's to let that goodness develop within us so that we can be a blessing to others. Joy comes as we enhance a growing relationship with Jesus, which is all about the other. The development of the qualities that Paul or that Peter is talking about in his 
book not only protects us from lust, but it propels us forward to Christ. Again, N.T. Wright puts and describes the pursuit this way. He says, become more fully human by building one aspect of Christian character on top of the other. One after the other, we become more what God wanted us to be. We, we en- enhance our own lives and the lives of others as we pursue moral development, which draws us closer into our relationship with Jesus. The joy of growth in Him, when we put the effort into it, is rich. It's full. All of this effort doesn't happen by accident. We have to choose to enter into developing these qualities and these characteristics. And as we do so, we will enhance our walk with the Lord. We will grow in Him, and the impact will be felt in our community. It will be felt beyond our church. All this effort reminds us of the one to whom we belong. We're followers of Jesus, friends. We're not simply those who are on a a moral development plan. We do it because we want to follow Him, and He's placed that desire in us because we've been given everything we need to live a godly life. We give Him our allegiance, and therefore, we give Him all of our effort and energy. That's why we call this effortless effort. We want to grow together as a church family. It's our hope and our desire. This is what churches need to do. It's what a church does. It calls people to grow closer to Jesus, but not just all of us as individuals. That's important that we have an individual connection with the Lord. He's given you as an individual everything you need to live a godly life. But He's also given us everything we need to live a godly life. We're meant to do this in community. When we work on these qualities together, when we together decide, yes, Let's pursue goodness and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection one for another. When we decide to do that together, the energy multiplies. The effectiveness and the fruitfulness that we're called to grows exponentially. And it even happens as we do it together because there's something about relating to one another in community that is both Wonderful and rich and full, and guess what? It's hard too. How many of us have had wonderful experiences with each other in community? I hope you can put your hand up and say, yeah, we've had some good ones. But on the other hand, how many of us have just been so frustrated by some other people, whether it's in this church or in your family or some other place at school in your dorm, it's just, oh, it drives me crazy. It's those moments especially in which our development plan can kick into gear because He's given us everything we need to live a godly life, even in that situation. And when we work on that together, we're making a difference, not only here, but here. And not only here, but there. That's what it's about. Inside out. Developing godly character, not just for ourselves, but so that we have something to share with others.
I hope and pray that this can be true for us. So let's pray together, and then Jonathan will come back up with the team. These are powerful words, Lord, that you've given us through the Apostle Peter. And we receive them with humility, with gratitude, and with a little trepidation. So in this moment, Lord, we just pray against anything that would be um, have any smack of legalism, any, any, any hint of, of duty and, and sort of an obligation to prove ourselves, we let go of that. And we put our palms up again and say we receive from you everything we need to live a godly life. We don't fabricate it ourselves. We receive it from you. And so in this moment, Lord, as we ponder these things, we confess that sometimes we have tried to drum this up ourselves. We confess that sometimes we have felt the burden on our own shoulders of needing to, to bear this load ourselves. And right now we repent of that and we gratefully, gratefully receive yourself into our lives as the one who has given us everything to live for you. And God, maybe now it's the very first time that we've considered it this way. And so we gratefully receive you into our lives as our friend, as a savior, as a strong source of energy to help us live and do the right things. Thank you for coming in. Help us now to pursue you with all the energy that you give us so that we grow in you so that our church becomes a strong, healthy church that loves one another and, and grows and makes a difference in the community around us, whether it's a community across the street or down the road into Vancouver or around the world, wherever you call us, Lord, help us to pursue you and make a difference where we are. In the strength that you give us, we pray this. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen. Jonathan.